For, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me this morning for the first time now in the book of Deuteronomy. We have a new book in front of us, Deuteronomy chapter 1. This class is day 73 in the Through the Bible reading calendar. Day 73, we're going to cover chapters 1 and 2 and a good portion of chapter 3. Although this being Communion Sunday, we struggle sometimes to, uh, to cover everything in the allotted time, but God's in charge of that as well. Deuteronomy chapter 1, understand we've covered so much already in uh, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, also the book of Job was, uh, was in there. So we've completed five books of the Bible already, 61 more to go. But this transition from Numbers to Deuteronomy, we are on the verge of the conquest, we are on the verge of Moses' death. And really, that's what this book is. This is his swan song. This is his farewell. Moses delivers a total of five farewell messages. And that's the book of Deuteronomy. And so he will deliver those. He will then die and will turn to Joshua and begin the conquest with, uh, with Jericho. So stay tuned for that. Before I get started today, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time in the truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you once again thankful for your grace and faithfulness, thankful for the blessings of the Word of God. And we, uh, we lost an hour of sleep last night, Father, but we call upon you and your faithfulness to keep us awake, to, uh, to keep us alert as we study to show ourselves approved. Open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts. We thank you, Father, and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, I give, in your outline, I give some points of study that for some inexplicable reason, I, I think in the notebook from 20 years ago, uh, I don't think I gave these points until chapter 5 or something later in the book, and I thought, well, that's kind of dumb. Uh, these it really should be up front so that we can outline the book right from the, the get-go. So I, I clipped them out of wherever it was, that uh, chapter 5 or chapter 7 or wherever, and put it up front for the, to the, uh, the first issues here in chapter 1. Deuteronomy is outlined differently by different men. Um, you can outline it yourself, or you can see how Logos outlines it in your uh, fact book. All you have to do is uh, open up the book of Deuteronomy and, and go to the, uh, the Bible book guide panel, and then you'll see all the outlines there you, you could possibly shake a stick at, and they are provided. The Bruce Wilkinson material that we reproduced in the notebook 20 years ago outlines Deuteronomy into three overall sermons. And I liked those charts at the time. I still like those charts, even to this day, but I'm not reproducing those charts because those are his and not mine. And uh, we're trying to be very careful related to copyright and other things that would hinder this material from ever being published at a uh, future point of time. But if you do open up, I uh, should have had this open already, the, uh, the Talk Through the Bible, Bruce Wilkinson's Talk Through the Bible, and you open it up to, not Joshua, but the uh, book of Deuteronomy. I should have prepared this ahead of time. Let me do this now. There it is. And you'll find he gives us good introduction there, and I reproduced these for the original 2002 notebook not doing that again. But then he has these charts, and I love these. And uh, if you're not familiar with these, um, these are very useful, the graphical presentations of an entire book. 
And I like charts, and I, I can stare at a chart for hours, and I can learn more staring at a chart than by, you know, reading 100 pages of, of narrative. And so I stare at this chart, and I see that, that Wilkinson took the book of Deuteronomy, and he basically broke it down into three sermons. The first one in, in from 1 to 4, uh, the second sermon starting at 444 and taking you through the end of 26, and then the third sermon, which he starts in 27.1 and takes you all the way to the end of the book. And so he breaks the book down into three farewell messages or three sermons, and he has subdivisions and different uh, uh, topics there, uh, what God has done, what God expects of Israel, what God will do. He kind of divides it into three parts, the historical, the legal, and the prophetical, and, and I guess that's useful. It does take place in the plains of Moab, opposite Jericho, uh, on the east side of the Jordan River, getting ready. And really, it takes about a month. There's, and that's, and that's debatable. How long does it take to read these sermons? How long does it take to preach these sermons? Did he preach one a day for five days? Um, I think a month is generous. I, I, it may even be less than that, maybe two weeks related to that. We do have a little bit of a calendar because when they do cross the Jordan, uh, one of the first things they have to do when they cross the Jordan is observe Passover. And so that at least clues us in into the time of year and uh, we have a, a time frame moving forward after that. So that is the Bruce Wilkinson division. Ralph Braun's chapter titles, if you ever open up the 1189 chapter titles from Ralph Braun, he, uh, he divides Deuteronomy into five farewell messages, and I like that division. I have slight tweaks on it, though. So uh, Ralph took chapters 1 through 3 as the first message, 4 through 11 as the second, 12 through 27 as the third, 28 through 30 as the fourth, and then chapter 31 as the fifth. He also numbered chapters 32 and 33 separately, um, giving basically the sixth and seventh message of the book. And so at that point it kind of becomes a little bit awkward to call Deuteronomy five farewell messages, but, but technically seven. All right. So like I say, I kind of tweaked what Ralph did there, and um, I take chapters one through four as a unit, chapters 5 through 11 as a unit. I call them farewell discourses because a discourse can actually contain subunits, can contain multiple messages within a a larger discourse. And so uh, essentially that's how we're going to follow in this notebook anyway. We're going to take chapters 1 through 4 as discourse number 1, 5 through 11 as number 2, 12 through 26. I mean, that's half the book. That's a, a huge chunk of Deuteronomy is chapter 12 through 26 as the third message. 27 and 28 is the fourth. The fifth message is 29 through 31. Then I add a psalm and a deathbed blessing. And I don't give them numbers. I still keep it as five uh, discourses plus a psalm and a deathbed blessing. Okay? And I tell you, after last night, I'm really motivated when we do get to the Song of Moses, I think we should do that Song of Moses karaoke. (laughs) And... uh, we're going to let Moses and Liz lead the way on the... It's the song of Moses after all, so you've got to have Moses lead the way on that. All right. The description of Deuteronomy is set out in the introduction to the book. So instead of letting liberal Germans from 200 years ago tell us what the book is, let's just read what the book says it is. So these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah opposite Suf between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazaroth and Dizahab. These are his words. This is his farewell. God has already told him he's going to die. God has already told him to appoint Joshua. He's already appointed Joshua. Joshua, in full view of the entire nation, is now the, the, uh, the new leader. 
Moses is uh, preparing for his departure. And here's how he starts. He says, It is eleven days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Eleven days' journey. In the fortieth year, on the first day of the eleventh month, Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had commanded him to give them. All right, so there's a time frame, and that helps us to lock in that one month approximation that Wilkinson was talking about. So he starts off by saying, It's an 11 day journey to get here. And now, 40 years later, here we are. Okay? And I can't think of a more profound way to start a message than, than Moses just did. So Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all the Lord had commanded him to give to them after he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and Edre. Across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law, saying... And so then we have uh, an explanation of everything their parents had been given and everything they had been given under Mosaic law. And that's how the book begins. And so we accept this as the plain language uh, reality of what this book is about. And if if the plain sense makes sense, we don't look for any other sense. This is what it claims to be. This is what it was accepted to be. This is what it presents itself as. And this is what Jesus accepted it as. Jesus accepted Moses as the author of the Pentateuch. Moses is reviewing their history and the law that God gave them to live under. And they're going to be grounded thoroughly in all of the legal expectations before they ever conquer the land because those are going to be the terms under which they're going to live in the land once the conquest is complete. Moses' first farewell discourse starts with the 11-day journey from Horeb to Canish Barnea via Mount Seir. This 11-day journey took 40 years. The Deuteronomic usage of Horeb rather than Sinai does not at all demand separate authorship. So we're going to start to notice different things about Deuteronomy. And what Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers all referred to as Mount Sinai now is being called Mount Horeb. Okay? Does that bother you? It's the same mountain. It has multiple names. And that's true of many places throughout the biblical record. And it's common to have multiple names. There are names of places that have were named by the people there before you, and then you rename them after you get there. You rename them after you conquer it. You rename it after it becomes yours. And then, uh, like, you know, so Mount McKinley gets renamed Mount McKinley, but it was Mount something else prior to that. And, uh, and it only, you know, whatever the, the culture of today is that, that decides that we're going to go back to those, those previous names and, and decide to call it Denali instead of calling it uh, Mount McKinley. That's a different message. Horeb is Sinai, and we're okay with that. But Horeb communicates to this generation in a way much better than Sinai communicated in their parents' generation. And we should recognize that as well. That different places have different significance. There's, there are localities that have significance to our parents that have no significance to us. Places that have significance to us in a different way than our parents is going to have even different significance to our children and their generation. See, So this is the normal part of human experience. And uh, it does not demand separate authorship. We don't have to go into some weird view that the Deuteronomy author came centuries later and, and uh, all of these other things. Moses reviews the history of the Exodus generation's departure from Mount Horeb. And uh, so we'll look at that now in verses 6 through 8. 
As Moses says, the Lord our God spoke to us at Horeb, saying, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and set your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the sea coast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. In other words, it's, they're, they're done in the, at the mountain receiving the law. It's time to go conquer the land. But they did not do it. Their, their parents failed and it's now been 40 years and it's up to them now in their generation. Verse 8, see, I have placed the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to them and to their descendants after them. So that's a covenant promise. God guaranteed it. And they are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the Jewish people, the, the nation of Israel. Moses goes on to say, I spoke to you at that time. So um, this is perhaps one of the greatest I told you so messages ever in the history of I told you so messages because he's going back the full 40 years, right? But now notice, so as we, as we peg this, Moses is reviewing the history of the Exodus generation's departure from Mount Horeb, details you can find in Numbers chapter 10 when they set out by their hosts uh, according to their tribal orders and the banners that they followed and all of that. And then we get to verses 9 and following, the establishment of the 70 elders of Israel. I spoke to you at that time saying I'm not able to bear the burden of you alone. And I like the usage of you here. He's talking to you because he's talking corporately to the nation of Israel. And literally, most of the people he spoke to on that occasion 40 years ago, they're dead now. It's their children who are alive now. It's their children who are and who may not have been born. Anybody that's less than 40 years old was not alive at Kadesh Barnea. Um, but those that were between 0 and 20 that were alive at Kadesh Barnea, they're now between uh, you know, 41 and, and 59 years of age. And, uh, and they will remember. But he's speaking corporately to the nation. And keep in mind, the, the covenant promises of God to Israel are to the entire nation. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and every other Jew as a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, the Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are this day like the stars of heaven in number. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousandfold more than you are, and bless you just as he has promised you. How can I alone bear the load and burden of you and your strife? (laughs) They are a stiff-necked people, and they do fight a lot. They grumble a lot. There's a lot of strife amongst the, uh, this nation. Choose wise and discerning and experienced men from your tribes, and I will appoint them as your heads. This is something he did back then. This is something that has to be done in every generation. You answered me and said, the thing which you have said to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and appointed them heads over you, leaders of thousands and of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, as well as officers for your tribes, what we would call the deep state. We would call the administrative bureaucracy of government that functions on the the civil basis to govern a people. You will also notice thousands and hundreds, like we saw with the military formations of the battalions and the companies, but we also have, uh, in a non-military sense, of fifties and tens, and as well as the bureaucratic officers for your tribes. 
Verse 16, Then I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your fellow countrymen, and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen, or the alien who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. So there's equal access before the, the, the court. The Lady Justice should be blind and not showing favoritism based upon who it is that's standing before them for justice. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. Then he said, the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. So they should handle everything they can locally. Only if something cannot be resolved locally, only then does it, does it advance up the, to, to Moses as the, as the uh, mediator of this covenant, as the national leader of this people, taking them from Egypt to Canaan. But keep in mind, Moses is not a king. When they get to Canaan, God never intended for Moses to reign as king in the land. They're not going to have a king until hundreds of years later when they demand a king because they want to be like the, all the Gentiles around them. All right, so I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. As a covenant theocracy that I think the original design, having no king, is that each of those 12 tribes have their own tribal princes, they have their own courts, their own justice. Only if something can't be resolved locally would it then go to a prophet, to an, a prophet in office in each generation that God would select to, uh, to answer those difficult questions. And clearly that's something we can't replicate today, all right? So as much as we want to bring Texas law into conformity with God's ideal for a covenant nation, we, uh, there are elements of Mosaic law that we just can't find any analogous uh, uh, consideration to, to put into place because we have no uh, theocratic prophets today. We are not a theocracy in, uh, as a Gentile nation. So, Reviewing the establishment of the 70 elders, if you want more on this, not only do we have it here in Deuteronomy 1, verses 9 through 18, but then you have the flashbacks. You can go and you can actually read these episodes in Exodus 18. You can go back and read Numbers chapter 11, and you can see the previous occasions where these things came into play. All right, then verses 19 through 46, really more than half the chapter now. Moses reviews the failure at Kadesh Barnea, the multiple failures actually at Kadesh Barnea, including his own personal failure. He doesn't hide from his own failure. He doesn't uh, avoid the the elephant in the room, if you will, because uh, the fact that he's giving a farewell message means he's not going with them when they conquer the land. That he's uh, he's actually going to die right here on this uh, on this occasion. God will bury him himself. So from verses 19 through 46, you have the failure of Kadesh Barnea, which we understand because we already studied it. We, in Numbers chapter 13 and Numbers chapter 14, we saw the, uh, the episode there. So we can probably save some time here and not read every last little bit of this, but I do want to hit some highlights. So we set out from Horeb and went through all the great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, just as the Lord our God had commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is about to give us. See, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession. As the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you, do not fear or be dismayed. And I think we understand there's a difference between giving a gift and receiving a gift, right? We understand there's provision in terms of salvation where God provides for eternal life, but we have to trust, we have to believe 
to receive the gift that he's freely giving. Here he's giving them the promised land, but they have to, by faith, receive what he's giving. In other words, go in and conquer the, uh, the people that are there. Then, reading from verse 22 then, Then all of you approached me and said, Let us send men before us that they may search out the land for us and bring back to us word of the way by which we should go up and the cities which we shall enter. And the thing pleased me, and I took twelve of your men, one man for each tribe. Now this appears to be different, or the, the description here is admittedly different than the description we had in chapter 13. In chapter 13, it's presented as Moses' idea or the Lord's instructions to send out the spies, spy the land. Here, the, uh, the idea is that this was what the tribes came up with. This is what they wanted to do. They came to Moses and said, can we send spies into the land, right? Now, some people, again, those liberals, think that this is proof that there were different authors involved and they couldn't keep their story straight and that uh, obviously the author of Numbers is not the author of Deuteronomy and blah, 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 blah. When there's a simpler way to reconcile these things, not by viewing them as different, but by viewing them as complementary because two things can be true at the same time. These tribal leaders can have the idea, hey, we should send some spies and go to Moses and say, can we send some spies? While at the same time, God gives the instructions to Moses, send some spies. And in fact, I find that much more reasonable than anything else because this then allows for confirmation of the will of God. This then allows for not only is God telling us to do this, but the people want to do it. And you have multiple people that are all as we say, like-minded in what the work assignment happens to be. Does that make sense? You know, it's curious to me too, so the critics are never happy if they say that the details are different then they say God couldn't have written it because he can't keep a story straight. But if, they, if the, identi- if the uh, stories are identical word for word, then they say, oh, well, God couldn't have written that because it was just obviously copied from somebody else and they were colluding to, to keep their story straight. And so they do the same thing with, with the Synoptic Gospels, by the way, with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why aren't they clones of one another? Why do they have different details? Because God's a genius and quit complaining about it, all right? This is what he's given us to study as we study to show ourselves approved. All right. So the thing pleased me. I took 12 of your men, one man for each tribe. They turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. And they took some of the fruit of the land in their, bo- in their hands and brought it down to us. And they brought us a back a report and said, it is a good land which the Lord your God is about to give us. However, there's more to the story. You were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you grumbled in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us from the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brethren have made our hearts melt saying the people are bigger and taller than we, the cities are large and fortified to heaven. And besides, we saw the sons of the Anakim there. Stay tuned, because we have more of these guys coming up. Okay, They are still there. They didn't go away. They didn't drop dead. They didn't disappear just because Israel failed. They are still there. Like uh, so many other things, if you, 
If you want to avoid your problems, pretend they're not problems, or, or just not do anything, it doesn't solve the issue. It doesn't make your problems go away. Then when you finally get back in fellowship and decide to obey the will of God, those same problems are still there, and they may have even gotten worse. All right? So I say to you, do not be shocked nor fear them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in reviewing this history, it's actually very useful because not only do they have the Egyptian history, which their parents observed, but they also have more recent history themselves. When they went to battle against Sihon and Og, when they went to battle against those, uh, those men east of the Jordan River. In uh, verse 31, in the wilderness, where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just as a man carries his son, in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. So for 40 years through the wilderness, it's like God was carrying a toddler around. And fundamentally, he was the nation of Israel, one great big old two-year-old that, you know, throwing temper tantrums in the wilderness. But for all this you did not trust the Lord your God who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. And it's curious to me because we have the travel log and we have some of the details. I imagine there's so much more about why God turned to the left when he did, why he turned to the right when he did, why he sat for the period of time that he sat, the, the times that they moved, the times that they sat. Every step of the way God's sovereignty was keeping them out of trouble providing for them, keeping them warm. Oh, and there's so much more. All right. Then the Lord uh, heard the sound of your words, and he was angry and took an oath, saying, not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give your father. So this is at the Kadesh Barnea Rebellion, the whole generation, and more than one generation, by the way, because it's everybody that's over 20. So that's going to include parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. It's going to include, I mean, there could be three generations, four generations. How many generations walked out of Egypt on dry ground through the, the Red Sea? We, sometimes I think I'm, we, we don't think of it properly when we call it just the Exodus generation. It should be plural. The plural Exodus generations of parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. Maybe there was a great-great-grandparent in there somewhere as the case may be. It doesn't matter. How many generations died after Kadesh Barnea? All of them except the under 20 crowd. It's only the current youth that would then be permitted to enter into, and it would be 40 years later that they would enter into Israel. So, um, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it, and to him and his sons I will give the land on which he has set his foot, because he has followed the Lord fully. Also, Joshua. The Lord was very angry with me also on your account, saying, not even you shall enter there. Not even you, Moses. Moses might have thought that maybe he was, you know, excluded because, you know, present company excluded or whatever. Come on, it's Moses. Of course he's not included. When God said only Caleb and only Joshua, I mean, clearly he meant to say also Moses because, I mean, come on, it's Moses. But Moses learned after he struck the rock that, no, you're not on the uh, except for list. You are going to die. You are not going to enter into the promised land. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter there. Encourage him, for he will cause Israel to inherit it. He's going to do the conquest that Moses could have done, but now it's going to fall to Joshua to, to do the conquest. 
<clears throat> Moreover, your little ones who you said would become a prey, and your sons who this day have no knowledge of good or evil shall enter there, and I will give it to them as they possess it. So they're using their children as their excuse. Oh, our children will be prey, and, and we should just go back to Egypt now. And using their, their little ones as their excuse, God then turns that on them and says, those are the ones who will receive the promises that you guys are rejecting. But as for you, turn around and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. They had a brief attempt at a repentance there and God wasn't having it. They tried to go in now through human effort, the wrong, the wrong way, the wrong time. You said to me, we have sinned against the Lord. We will indeed go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. So, you know, I mean, what's wrong with that? Aren't they repentant? Didn't they confess? Can't they be back in fellowship? Go conquer the land. No, God said no. It's no longer the will of God. You, you, you suffered a 40-day delay, and now if you try to go up, you're going to get massacred. And that's, uh, that's exactly what happens. Verse 43, I spoke to you, you would not listen. Instead, you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord and acted presumptuously and went up into the hill country. And the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and crushed you from Seir to Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. So you can cry all you want. You know, God's not going to change His will because uh, you feel bad, because you're emotional about it, because you regret the dumb choice you made. You made a dumb choice, and and it's a 40-year consequence. So you remained in Kadesh many days, the days that you spent there. So there's the summary that takes us to the end of chapter 1. Moses reviews the failure of Kadesh Barnea, including his own personal failure. We dealt with that last week. All right, gets us now to chapter 2. Moses' first farewell discourse continues with a review of Israel's journey past Edom. So it's the same discourse, it's just the the message is advancing, the the next message in the sequence is being delivered. So we turned and set out by the wilderness, by the way of the Red Sea, and as the Lord spoke to me and circled Mount Seir for many days. And, And again, we don't know how long, we don't know. We have the travel log, we know what the stops were named. But we don't know the time frame in between those stops, and we also don't know if, in fact, there was um, uh, retracing of steps, if there were multiple laps, like, for example, circling Mount Seir for many days. Well, how many days? How many circles? <laughs> you know, Did they just circle it seven times for seven days, or like Jericho, or did they circle it a hundred times for three years? We don't know. All we know is they got from Kadesh Barnea to the, to the opposite of Jericho 40 years later. And then the route in the middle is still a puzzle that we would try to work out. Commanded the people, verse 4, saying, you will pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Now as they're making their final approach, After the 40 years have passed, when they're making their final approach, uh, which all happens in the book of Numbers, I mean it all happens right there in a short stand uh, between chapter 14 and chapter 20, Uh, now they're making their final approach as 40 years have gone by, they're going to go up the east side then rather than the, uh, the south side into the land. And let me go ahead and put this up. I've been doing map work on some of these um, locations, the place of Mount Seir, the place of Edom, 
Let me just open up the atlas. Huh. My atlas button isn't there. The fact book is there. wonder why the atlas doesn't show up. In any event, So the first failure was here, Kadesh Barnea. And the, the whole point was to enter the land from the south. They sent the spies in from the south. They searched the whole land south to north. They returned north to south. They reported to Moses what they saw. Everything was coming from the south. For the second invasion, 40 years later, they were actually going to come from the east. And so this involved um, bypassing or going through or around Edom and Moab and these lands over here. And so they tried to come through to Edom, and Edom said no, which meant they had to go the long way around, which meant they had to go all the way down to the Red Sea, cut around, and come up the east side. Then they had a similar issue with Moab where they requested permission to go through, had a fight there, and then they come up here in Mount Nebo. This is the location where Moses dies. And uh, you see we are opposite... It's not on this map, but Jericho is sitting right there by the M in Jerusalem. So that gives you the idea. I hope you're playing with these toys. These, uh, you have these in your Logos Bible software installations, and you can pull up a place and look at the map, look at the atlas, and uh, work your way through this. All right, so at this point in the message, he's reviewing the journey past Mo- uh, Edom and then reviewing the journey past Moab and Ammon. So verses 1 through 8 and verse 12 here, he's reviewing the journey past Edom. And he's saying, be careful. Don't fight them. They're your brother nation. Don't attack them. Don't provoke them. And I think some of the words of caution here are interesting. So let's, t- let's pay attention, especially with current events and the news going on these days. So you will pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not provoke them, for I will not give you any of their land, even as little as a footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. And in fact, Esau had a possession before Israel ever got their possession. Esau had 12 princes. They had a a, a national structure before Israel ever had their national structure. Esau is not God's chosen people, but he is the twin brother to Jacob. And so as far as it goes, of all the Gentile nations in the world, Edom is unique. Esau is Edom. Esau is the person, Edom is the nation. They are the twin nation of the Jews, of the covenant nation of Israel. No other Gentile nation can claim that. Others have slightly different kinship. We're going to see Moab and Oman and Ammon here in a moment. But Edom is the twin. You shall buy food from them with money so that you may eat. You shall also purchase water from them with money that you may drink. So no warfare, no stealing. Everything at a fair price. It is a volitional exchange. And on a free will basis, a volitional exchange, both parties benefit. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. 
So we passed beyond our brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road, away from Elath and from Ezi and Geber, and we turned and passed through by the way of the wilderness of Moab. In other words, they had to go the long way around. Ezi and Geber is the coastal port that's down there at the Red Sea. They had to go the long way around. I think these notes are interesting, not only when you're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 2, but also Numbers chapter 20, Numbers chapter 21, reading those details, we went through them last week. Notice the Edomite land grant, the Edomite land grant, as we see it here. Now we've got to kind of glance down a little bit, we're going to get down to verses 21 and 22. Let's see. Do you see the, the phrase in verse 12? where it says, the Horites formerly lived in Seir, but the sons of Esau dispossessed them. It means it's not their land anymore. It used to be the Horites. That's why it's called Mount Hor. It's now, but you got Horites that aren't living there anymore. So now it's going to get a new name, Seir. And the sons of Esau dispossessed them because it's going to be Edomite land. No longer is it going to be Horite land. They actually intermarried with them and mixed with them and there's other things that, that happened there. But the point is, they were dispossessed. God transferred the, the title deed of that land grant. It was no longer the Horites. It now becomes the Edomites' possession. Settled in their place. Dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place. Just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Same thing when you get down to verse 22. Just as he did for the sons of Esau who live in Seir when he had destroyed the Horites from before them and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. To this day. All right. I think it is important. Acts 17.26 tells us that God has sovereign control of every people group and every nation. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. That's the sovereignty of God. So when he chooses to remove a land from a people group and give to a different people group, that's his good pleasure. That's his wisdom. That's his righteousness. And if a land has defiled the land with bloodshed, with fornication, with idolatry, They're on a fast track to being dispossessed because the land itself will vomit them, will spew them out of its mouth. Just want to highlight these things, okay? We've got things in the news right now. Russians are moving into Ukraine. All right, and at what point is Ukraine no longer Ukraine? When it no longer belongs to the Ukrainian people? When it now belongs to the Russian people? The land formerly known as Ukraine. Well, guess what? It used to belong to the Soviet Union. It used to, the Nazis took it twice. It used to belong to the Germans. It used to belong to the Poles. It used to belong to, to the uh, Latvians, you know, the Lithuanian Commonwealth. It used to belong to, uh, uh, to Hungary for a while. I mean, a lot of people have had that land. The Tartars had that land. The, the, uh, Crimea, the, uh, the, the Cognate that had that land. There were, there were other things. Go back to the Mongol horde. I mean, eventually, Nobody's been where they are forever. Somebody had this place before the, the current people got here. The same thing, by the way, is true of the Native Americans that we dispossessed. They dispossessed the people before them. It's always been the way that God has operated. Anyway, stay tuned for that. 
After reviewing the Edomite journey, he, uh, Moses reviews Israel's journey past Moab and Ammon. Now they are not the twin nation, but they are the cousins. They are the nephews because they are descended from Lot, the nephew of Abraham. Makes them a contemporary generation-wise of uh, Isaac. and You can call these the cousin nations, not the twin nation, but the cousin nations. And so this is verses 9 through 23. The Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab nor provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar, A-R, to the sons of Lot as a possession. See, Israel's not the only country with a land grant. Every country has a land grant. Every country is God's in charge of their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. And then they dispossessed a people too. They had to go in and fight the Emim. Who are the Emim giants? Nephilim, like the ones you're scared of. Okay. The Emim lived there formerly, a people as great, numerous, and tall as the Anakim you're scared of. Like the Anakim, they're also regarded as Rephaim. But the Moabites call them Emim. So it's just a language issue. It's the same animal, different language. Again, the Horites formerly lived in Seir, but the sons of Esau dispossessed them. Now arise and cross over the brook Zered yourselves. So we crossed over the brook Zered. At the time it took for us to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years. So an 11-day journey becomes 38 years until all the generation of the men of war perished from within the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. Moreover, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from within the camp until they all perished. So, reviewing this history. Now, I do give you some notes in the outline, and and this would be worth spending some time and going through here, because um, this text provides additional terminology related to the Nephilim slash Rephaim, the giant studies, that uh, that we actually began in Genesis chapter 6. We actually began in Noah's flood. We talked about the fallen angels who took human women, who produced these giant babies, these hybrid, half-angel, half half-human abominations. And so starting in Genesis 6, we saw the origin of them. But you recall that we noticed that those weren't the only days that Nephilim were on the earth. They were on the earth in those days, but also afterward. So it shouldn't shock us. In the book of Numbers, we have more Nephilim. Or in the book of Deuteronomy, we have more Nephilim. And we start to find additional vocabulary attached to them because they start to become more widespread and they start to become, um, after the Tower of Babel incident, they start to become uh, referred to in different languages, in different reference points. And so, really, the whole Old Testament from Noah to David, by the time you get to David and his war with Goliath and the other giants that, that are killed there by David and his mighty men, we're, we're really seeing from the open to the closing act of the the uh, the giant narrative of the Old Testament. Essentially from Genesis 6 to 2 Samuel 21. By the time you get to 2 Samuel 21, you have the final giants that are killed here in uh, the days of David. <coughs> All right, we'll let that go. The Moabites had a name for these guys, called them the Amim. Of course, then there's also the Anakim. The sons of Anak are called the Anakim. They also are regarded as Rephaim. But the Moabites called them Emim. 
Okay? Remember, Nephilim and Rephaim are interchangeable related to these hybrid beings. Then the Ammonites called them Zam, Zanzumim. They gave them a name that starts with Z. Regarded as the land of the Rephaim, for Rephaim formerly lived in it, but the Ammonites called them <coughs> Zamzumim. A people as great, numerous, and tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place. So I find it interesting. And then also the Avim. This is what I've missed in previous years. The Avim that are mentioned there in verse 23, who lived in villages as far as Gaza. They used to be on the coast. Until when? Until the Philistines showed up. And the Philistines killed those giants and took the land over. So it's it's quite interesting that the post-flood history of these giants is that even Gentile nations uh, didn't want the dominion under these hybrid abominations. And so they would hunt them down. And that seemed to be the pattern until David and Goliath, when the Philistines decided to ally themselves with the giants instead of fighting them. That's a message for a different day as well. All right. So just keep this text in mind. Remember, if you're going to do advanced giant studies, don't overlook Deuteronomy chapter 2. Okay? Start with Genesis 6, but you've got a whole lot more. You've got Numbers 13, you've got Deuteronomy uh, chapter 2, you've got 1 Samuel 17, you've got a broad assortment of biblical texts to work your way through when you're studying giants. Rephaim is the Hebrew word there for giants. All right, so you have notes on that. And then, to cap it all off, Let me get down here to verses 24 through 37. <clears throat> Arise, set out, pass through the valley of Arnon. Look, I have given Sihon the Amorite. Moses is still reviewing their journey past the Edomite people through the Moabite land and then on to the north of the Moabite land when they start to get to the region of these giants up here. I have given Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land into your hand. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. In other words, this is an opening skirmish in the conquest. The opening skirmish, even before they cross the Jordan, the opening skirmishes in the conquest are east of the Jordan, and they start with Sihon and Og. So take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the peoples everywhere under the heavens who, when they hear the report of you, will tremble and be anguish because of you. So God's turning the, the tables. He's act, absolutely he's rewriting the script. It's not for Israel to be terrified of the giants. It's for the giants to be terrified of Israel. It's for all of the inhabitants of Canaan to tremble when they hear the other, even just to think about the thought that God is leading his people into his land. That they will tremble and be in anguish. You know, when your enemy is absolutely trembling, when they're absolutely mentally already defeated, that makes a huge difference when it comes to actually physically waging the war. They're already mentally, spiritually, emotionally Psychologically, they are already a defeated foe. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sihon, king of Heshbon, with words of peace. Well, why would Moses do that? 
crafty fellow that he is. You know, you know, you liar, what are you doing? Saying, let me pass through your land. I will travel only on the highway. I will not turn aside to the right or to the left. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because those are the words he said to Edom. Those are the words he said to Moab. Those are the words, uh, and now he's saying the very same words to, to Sihon, the king of Og. I'm starting to think here that Moses is a deceptive snake, some kind of a liar. Actually, I think he's pretty cool, okay? Because this is sanctified military um, deception. This is a subterfuge, if you want to use that word, okay? The Bible says don't lie. Okay, don't lie, but you can do military subterfuge, and it's not a lie. So anyway, here's the, the peace offer. You will sell me food for money so that I may eat. Give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot. Just as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar, they did for me. That's also a lie. Edom said, no, you've got to walk around. All right. Until I cross over the Jordan in the land where the Lord our God is giving to us. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, was not willing for us to pass through his land. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate in order to deliver him into your hand as he is today. If nothing else, we could read verses like this and just thank God that with all of the geopolitics and all of the everything else going on, God's in charge. He's the one that the, king, the heart of the king is in the hand of, of the Lord. And the Lord said to me, see, I have begun to deliver Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to occupy that you may possess his land. And so, you know, we're praying for the Ukrainians, we're praying for all this stuff. And what's Putin thinking and whatever? I have no clue, but God does. God knows exactly what he's thinking. And if he's hardened his heart, if he's got him set on this course, God knows what he's doing. So Sihon with all his people came out to meet us in battle at Jahaz. And, and we actually have more information here than when we were reading it in Numbers 21, which is kind of interesting, because in Numbers 21, we had the narrative of the event as it happened. Now we have the, the hindsight. Now we have Moses' reflection upon it when he's giving his farewell sermon at the end of his life. And so the Lord our God delivered him over to us, and we defeated him with his sons and all his people. So we captured all his cities at that time and utterly destroyed the men, women, and children of every city. We left no survivor We took only the animals as our booty and the spoil of the cities which we had captured from a rower which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon and from the city which is in the valley, even to Gilead. It wasn't called Gilead yet, but it will be called Gilead when when they uh, move in and they rename it. There was no city that was too high for us. The Lord our God delivered us, delivered all over to us. Only you did not go near to the land of the sons of Ammon, all along the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, wherever the Lord our God had commanded us. So Moab and Ammon were spared. Edom was spared. There's, by the way, there's prophecy in this as well. Because Moab and Ammon were, are going to have future deliverance in the tribulation. They're going to be rescued from the hand of Antichrist in the tribulation. They're going to actually provide a refuge for Israel from Antichrist. There's other things there too that make me wonder, when God gives a land grant to the descendants of Lot, how much of that is because Abraham said, pick, pick the land you want and I'll go the other way. You take the high road, I'll take the low road. And, 
or actually Lot took the low road, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham took the hill country. When Abraham said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left I will go right, if to the right I will go left. So Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the valley of the Jordan. It was well watered everywhere. Obviously before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like the Garden of Eden. It's a great well watered land. Yeah, okay, you've got some Sodomites there and they're, they're, spiritually they're, they're awful. But notice it looked physically beautiful even though it was being de- defiled and ready to vomit. So Lot chose for himself the valley of the Jordan and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they settled from each other. And I don't know, is God honoring Abraham's gift? Because God had promised all of this land to Abraham, but now Abraham has subdivided, if you will. He has taken a portion of his grant and blessed Lot. And because of that, Ammonites and Moabites, the nations that descended from Lot, and his daughters, what an ugly story. Okay, He had babies with his own two daughters. How sad is that? But those nations are blessed. Those nations have a future in the tribulation and beyond, in the millennium. Things that make you think. All right, which gets us to Deuteronomy chapter 3. And we're supposed to get 20 verses done in Deuteronomy chapter 3. Moses uh, continues to talk about the good old days which was really pretty recently, actually, by the time we're, we get to Deuteronomy. Okay, So we turned and we went up the road to Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, with all his people, came out to meet us in battle at Edrai. So um, we'll have to pick up with these two points next hour, and uh, which will be after our lunch break today. <clears throat> and then uh, we will finish chapter 3, and we'll move on to the material from day 74. But this is our communion Sunday, so we've reached the top of the hour. I need to close in prayer, and, uh, and then we can bring the Sunday school in, and we can go to the Lord's table. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for truth and the privilege that we have. And thank you for giving us the big picture, Father. We're not, <clears throat> we're not stopping. We're not doing the doctrine of Nephilim or the doctrine of giants, but we are spotting where such passages can be found we are observing in the big picture the, the, the height and breadth of Scripture. So then when we do go back, Father, we have a firm grasp on the overall forest before we go back and start looking at individual trees and branches and leaves. Uh, Father, there is an infinite detail in your word, and we thank you that we have uh, the rest of our lives and forever to keep growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So uh, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all your abundant blessings. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.